It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to October's Bits and Pieces show. Indie podcaster Fiona here, along with my sidekick James. Hi there. We're going to start off this month with a couple of areas of grassroots activism. The first, we're going to drop in again on Future Voices. We're also going to take a look at the Chain of Freedom. What a wonderful event that was. All that and more coming up. (laughs) We're going to start with Future Voices. We played two clips last month. And just as a heads up, we are hoping to feature Future Voices on our Mibby's Eye show in November. For now, this video is on the topic of community. For the uninitiated, this is going to be as though we had already achieved a yes vote. So unlike I was the first time, you will now be able to listen to it and go, ah, this is the future. (laughs) Not weird. These guys seem to be experiencing an entirely different Scotland than I am. (laughs) Yes, this is how good it could be. It's brilliant to be living in a place built for well-being. Under the new planning guidance, placemaking and design have benefited greatly from local decision-making. People like you and me are asked for our views and more importantly listened to. It's about creating communities we all feel better living in. Lachlan is a member of his local community council, which has wide powers and responsibilities for shaping local decisions. He has seen the impact of collective decisions on his local environment. The key was listening to the people and businesses in our community to understand their needs and concerns. We then use that understanding to identify the resources, services, infrastructure and amenities that contribute most to well-being. The first stage was to address the town's circulation problem. Lachlan's Community Council helped to develop mixed-use zoning that encourages walkability, reduces traffic congestion and enhances social interaction. Green spaces and parks provide opportunities for outdoor activities, relaxation and community gatherings. Streets are pedestrian and bike friendly, while public transport is efficient and accessible. The impact? There's way less dependence on private vehicles, which has reduced traffic congestion and pollution. New solar-powered street lighting has helped create a boom in the town's nighttime economy. And with the support of the community police, folk feel safe coming into the town at night. People are simply more active and more interactive with others. There are early indications that these measures are already impacting on life expectancy and on quality of life. Put simply, people here are living better for longer. And who wouldn't want to live here? The affordable housing promotes inclusivity and social diversity within the town. Healthcare and social services are easily accessible, while local businesses and markets foster a sense of community and reduce the need for long commutes. Meanwhile, the easy access to cultural centres, theatres, museums and sports facilities encourages residents to engage in creative and recreational activities. And what about leisure? Well, so much is available to everyone, it feels like a normal part of life these days. People are more focused on a healthy lifestyle, but it's not just that. I feel there's a real sense of public value in arts and sports. Perhaps that's because the priorities are set by the citizens and not some unseen bureaucrat. Music, sport and art are offered through all school year groups. Our children and young people have loads of safe spaces to play and hang out to. I'm confident this is a town that will thrive for generations. It all goes to show a place operates best when it works for its inhabitants. Sean Harris, Scottish Vision. So that's another of these future-focused how-good-could-it-be clips. And there's a lot of things in there that we talk about now. More local decision-making and there's an element of the sort of 20-minute neighbourhoods as well. Lots more things locally. Yeah, it was all good stuff in there. And though we're looking into the future here, this is how a lot of towns in particularly the Nordic countries are. So it's not a ridiculous future. It's actually happening somewhere. It's just not happening here yet. Sticking with grassroots activism, the big show in town this month was the Chain of Freedom. Now, this has been in the planning stage for a long time. And two ladies, Wilma Bowie and Judith Reed, absolutely thrown everything at this to make it happen. We actually interviewed them back in May when it was just a plan at that point. So let's just remind ourselves what they said. It is a fantastic Mm -hmm. idea. Is it going to be challenging? And has it been challenging? I'm not going to lie to you. It has. Very much so. However, we are extremely excited about it. Mm -hmm. We're enthused. We're basically 
eating, sleeping and breathing it at the moment. It will be such a fantastic showcase, not just for Scotland, but for other countries as well that is wanting and, and not stopping or campaigning mm -hmm. for their independence as well. And there's many other countries that have regained their independence and why can't Scotland? I think it's also an event that everybody can join in. Now, we're used to the kind of chants you get on marches, like, what do we want? Independence. Well, we had a new chant at the Chain of Freedom. This is what you could hear up and down the canal side. Freedom, freedom, freedom! Freedom, freedom, freedom! What do we want? Freedom! How do we want it? In a chain! <laughs> There was a lot more that you could hear on the canal side. I mean, it was a fantastic event. It was a beautiful sunny day. It was a really uplifting, joyful kind of event. People were singing. Old Lang Syne kept breaking out. I think that's what happens when you, you make Scottish people hold hands. We all start singing that. There was bagpipes, there was drums, there was whistles. So it really was a fantastic event. The, the number of people who said to us, oh, this is bringing people together. And it absolutely was because you didn't know what party or persuasion anybody was, what, what yes group they were in even they were just all there on the canal side it really did seem to strike a chord with people we have done a souvenir edition which you can find on our youtube channel that's indiepod extra there's a little bit of drone footage in there as well and you might be able to see yourselves people commented on the fact there was no mainstream media there at all i think there might have been a camera crew from sweden but apart from that the only ones there were the indie media people up along the chain were doing their best to capture and share but if you do see any of the videos the photos anything like that posts on social media please do share them because that's the only way that this kind of thing is going to get out there but it was a fabulously positive thing and i'm hoping that it will be the first of more even though there's a lot of work involved it was a spectacle. It was something different and people did seem to enjoy it. The 5th of October was the Rutherglen and Hamilton by-election. SNP lost that. Labour gained a seat. The manifesto that the Labour candidates stood on seemed to be quite different to his own party's manifesto, but we'll see how that works out. Professor John Curtis took part in a lunchtime debate from the UK in a Changing Europe series. You'll get the full episode of that on their YouTube channel. The question he'd actually been asked was what does the Rutherglen result predict for the results for a general election and I think the answer is probably not very much but let's hear John explain it. So if we take the average of the opinion polls that have been conducted since the beginning of September, there are about a half a dozen of them. On average, the SNP are at 36%. That's nine points down on what they secured in the December 2019 UK election, while the Labour Party are running at 32%, which is up 13. The Conservatives are back down to about 17%. That's eight points down on 2019. And the Liberal Democrats are running at around seven. That's also down a bit on 2019. 19. So uh, the first thing to bear in mind, uh, despite the fairly dramatic headlines, most polls still have the SNP ahead, though only marginally. And as a result, if that polling were correct, then the SNP would still be favourites to win a majority of the seats in Scotland, although the Labour Party would probably pick up around 20 or so seats, and that potentially has implications for the outcome of the UK election overall, um, because the more seats Labour Party can pick up in Scotland, the less the lead over the Conservatives they need in order to get an overall majority. And at the moment, Labour face a pretty adverse electoral geography on that count. Now, that swing from uh, the SNP to Labour Party that is registered by the opinion polls is currently running at 11%. In contrast, the swing in Rutherglen was 20%. So you can quite reasonably ask, well, which of those do we believe? Well, the first thing I think one has to bear in mind is that by-elections not uncommonly exaggerate the swings against a government when a government is in a degree of measure of electoral trouble. We saw this in the Selby by-election uh, in Yorkshire not so long ago. If the Rutherglen by-election were a true reflection of where uh, Scotland is uh, as a whole is at, then you'd be talking about the Labour Party being back to around the 40 seats that they got back in 2010 before the disaster of the 2015 election. And yes, the SNP would no longer 
have a majority. So the SNP are certainly down. Well, there are two things I think then that has to be borne in mind. One of them, at least, I think is often forgotten. The first is that the rise of the Labour Party in Scotland predates the decline of the SNP. The Labour Party was already running at 30% in Scotland by the end of last uh, calendar year. And essentially, the Labour Party in Scotland profited from exactly the uh, same reasons as the Labour Party in, uh, in, in England. That is one, Boris Johnson and Partygate, and two, Liz Truss and her fiscal event. And Labour's progress during the course of this year has been uh, rather more minimal. The second thing to say that what has certainly happened this year is that a substantial gap has opened up between the level of support for independence and level of support for the SNP. One of the intriguing things that we'd reached to in Scotland by the 2021 Scottish Parliament election was that politics in Scotland were beginning to like the politics of Northern Ireland. That is, that basically the constitutional question was dominating to more or less the exclusion of everything else. And pretty much everybody who was in favour of independence were voting for the SNP. And pretty much everybody was opposed to independence. Uh, They were not voting for the SNP. Now a gap has opened up because actually support for independence you quite rightly pointed out it's still a little less than half it's actually running on average at 49 percent at the moment and that's pretty much where it's been for most of the time for the last four years but it's 49 percent for independence where support for the SNP is down at 36 percent and certainly one of the thing challenges facing the party apart from indeed wanting to get support for independence above the 50 percent mark is to try to close that gap and try to persuade some of the people who at the moment say they would still vote yes, but are now minded to vote for the Labour Party to actually to return into the nationalist fold. So on the whole, this seems to sort of neatly dovetail with our current perception that some of the shine has kind of worn off the SNP lately and people are starting to sort of look at them and go, well, you're on to about your third, fourth mandate. You keep saying this is the one thing that you're trying to do, but it all seems to be going a bit slowly, which obviously has also been a reason behind various other parties popping up and sort of saying, well, we're going to do it, but faster. It is an intriguing, or it's it's probably quite a worrying position for the SNP to be in. And to be fair, there have been a lot of external events that have come at the party all at once. And we'll just at this point put in our regular reminder that Scottish Independence Podcast is not party political, but obviously a lot of the news around is from the SNP. That's why we're covering so much. One interesting question which came up from someone else in the podcast team who comment on the, on the fact that the SNP is lost something like 40,000 members. I don't know if the party ever does any polling or any kind of focus groups or anything with former members to see what it was that, that turned them away. Because it, would, it strikes me that asking why people chose to leave might be a useful source of information. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. actually going to move on to Holyrood and a debate which was led by the Independence Minister Jamie Hepburn. It was following one of the committee reports into the impact of leaving the EU, the impact that's had on devolution. We're going to just include a selection of the speeches from that debate because it was quite hard hitting and the same kind of discussion is happening in other parts of the UK as well. I know Wales are taking forward a constitutional convention of some kind and Mark Drakeford has been very outspoken about the negative effect of Brexit on devolution. And I think we're seeing that as well. Speakers here, we've got a portion of the speech of Jamie Hepburn, Michelle Thompson and Ross Greer. But today the Tories are intent on rolling back the gains of devolution, taking back control of policy to Westminster and widening the democratic deficit once again. The Conservatives have just six MPs in Scotland but behave too often as if they can ignore and override our democracy. Alistair Jack uses his position as Scottish Secretary as some kind of high on Governor General mm. telling the elected government and elected Parliament of Scotland what is and what is not acceptable to him. The Scottish Government has set out a number of ways in which the UK Government's actions have constrained and undermined devolution. These include reducing the effective powers of the Scottish Parliament through the UK Internal Market Act, giving powers to UK ministers to intervene directly in matters within devolved responsibilities, undermining the Shul Convention, blocking legislation to devolve matters past 
by the Scottish Parliament for the first time, putting at risk EU laws and environmental protection, food standards and other devolved matters, and taking a direct role in devolved policy and decisions on public spending and devolved matters, bypassing this Scottish Parliament. Mm. Evidence for all these is set out in detail in uh, this Government's paper, Devolution since the Brexit referendum, and in our evidence to Scottish Parliament committees. Since the publication of that paper, there have been further developments on two of these issues that I want to explore in more detail. First is the UK Government's continued erosion of the Sewell Convention, culminating in its approach to the Energy Bill, which stands the Convention on its head. Second, in the focus of our motion today, the emerging implications of the Internal Market Act and its wide-ranging practical constraints on the ability of this Parliament to pursue policy objectives and implement the choices of people of Scotland. It all started with Brexit, didn't it? Sold a dud by Tory Brexiteers by stoking then playing on their fears, people in the UK took a leap into the darkness, apart from Scotland, who wisely voted by a majority to remain. Now, it wasn't immediately obvious that the slogan take back control really meant something entirely different. The lunatics in the asylum forced through a hard Brexit and a power grab by Westminster on our institution, this Scottish Parliament. Sensible proposals to allow Scotland to continue to have access to the single market were ignored, but eventually conceded for Northern Ireland and the admission that they had the best deal possible by Sunak when he was Chancellor. The supine Scottish Tories are left with a rictus grin and defending the indefensible as the evidence mounts up with the latest poll showing 58% of UK voters in favour of re-entering the EU. No wonder people were too embarrassed to turn up to the Tory conference. And the Labour Party branch office in Scotland are no better. Make Brexit work, claims Sir Keir Starmer, in an attempt to woo back red wall voters. Even the Labour amendment, which can be summarised as play nice, is paltry. But it's good news that they agree to repeal of the UK IMA as set out in the SNP motion. Is this the response to an all-out assault on the institution that the Labour Party claimed to have helped create. They must be embarrassed by the Welsh Labour leader showing them how objections to the Internal Market Act are done. This Parliament made clear that it refused to give consent, as did the Welsh Senate, but that, alongside a multitude of other Sewell motions, have been ignored. Another by-product of the lack of respect from Westminster of this institution. So what then of the Internal Market Act? It won't surprise members to know that I yield towards facilitating business and so can understand the sensible approach adopted by the Scottish Government in agreeing to common frameworks. But the evidence heard by the Constitution, Europe, External Affairs and Culture Committee was overwhelmingly that UK IMA places more emphasis on open trade than regulatory autonomy. So in terms of balance and fundamentally allowing devolution to continue to work where the whole point was allowing divergence on matters expressed democratically through the ballot box, the Act is skewed. It was made clear that it would have an effect, not just my view, but that of Professor McEwen, who said to the committee about the Act that it, and I quote, might in of itself be introducing delays in the policy-making process, if not putting things into a long-term chill. The UK IMA stifles innovation or a different way of doing things. Would the smoking ban have been allowed? Would the introduction of a charge for plastic bags have been allowed in Rishi Sunak's climate-denying world? The same committee highlights concerns around public health choices by the likes of Alcohol Focus Scotland, Ash Scotland and Obesity Action Scotland. They collectively, and I quote from the report, have serious concerns that the effect of the mutual recognition principle for goods will be to significantly reduce the benefits of introducing new devolved measures to protect public health. But the real concern is one of democracy, or rather lack of, The Fraser of Allender Institute said this, The Internal Market Act can therefore be seen as enabling a range of UK government interventions that bypass not only the Barnett formula, but the devolved administrations themselves. So let me rephrase that by bypassing this democratically elected parliament. 
Viceroy Jack, in his recent speech to the Tory conference, now delights in his new understanding of devolution. No more devolve and forget, says he, emboldening the bypassing of the democratically expressed wishes of the people of Scotland. He says he's giving back a further £140 million of our money to seven local councils in Scotland, based on whose priorities, who voted for that. How will it be monitored? And the funds are to be spread over 10 years at £26 million per year. Compare that to the £183 million per year that this Parliament got from the EU. Presiding officer, those Scottish politicians who refused to stand up for Scotland during a cost of living crisis, who turned down opportunities to make matters better, such as denying this place the ability to control employment law, will not be forgiven. Do not forget the rights of the people of Scotland, rights that remain and will not be removed. The greatest sign of devotion's success is how completely normal and undisputed the Scottish Parliament's status is as the centre of Scottish public life, not just for people my age and younger, but for those who remember the pre-devolution era as well. Three in four people here believe Holyrood should have the most influence over how Scotland is run, compared to just 14% who believe that of Westminster. Two-thirds believe that Holyrood works in Scotland's best interest most or all of the time, compared to just one in five who believe the same of Westminster. A majority believe the Scottish Parliament has given Scotland a stronger voice within the UK. Only one in 20 believe it is weaker. Whilst independence is the preferred outcome of half of voters and over two-thirds of young voters, abolishing devolution is a fringe position with no significant advocates. Our constitutional debate is about just how powerful the Scottish Parliament should be devolution or independence. Despite the primacy of this parliament being the preference of the vast majority of people in Scotland, the UK Westminster government is engaged in a direct attack on the fundamental principles of devolution and on Scottish democracy itself. A Tory government which Scotland did not vote for has used a Brexit process which Scotland also rejected to give itself a new power of veto over decisions made by the parliament and the government which which the people of Scotland did elect. That's all the Internal Market Act is, a power of veto to be used by UK governments when Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland makes decisions they do not like. It fundamentally changes, it weakens the devolution settlement. Devolution was established with the consent of the Scottish people through an overwhelming majority vote in a referendum. It was expanded and strengthened by consensus. All parties agreed to the rounds of further devolution seen in the last two decades. But the Tories have shattered that broad consensus since the Brexit process. The IMA is a Westminster power grab. The purpose of devolution is for Scotland to make different choices to those made at Westminster when that difference is the desire of or in the best interests of the people that we represent. Not only does the IMA give UK ministers a sweeping veto power, it's already creating a chilling effect on Scottish policy making. I won't be the only MSP who's spoken to stakeholders already curtailing their own proposals because of an assumption that their boldest ideas would highly likely be vetoed. It creates a pressure on the Scottish Government itself to scale back on its ambitions, and the Government must resist that pressure. Devolution, but within arbitrary limits set by whichever administration is in office at Westminster at any given time, is not what the people of Scotland voted for in 1997 or in any election since to this Parliament or to Westminster. Today's debate couldn't be more timely, given the letter received by the Net Zero Committee just this morning from the UK Secretary of State, Alistair Jack. Mr Jack used the power he now holds as a result of the Internal Market Act to wreck the Scottish deposit return scheme for bottles and cans. And the committee have, understandably, sought a UK government minister to appear before them since July to explain his actions. But this has been refused and refused again. Why is Alistair Jack hiding? What's he running scared of? Well, let me tell you, Mr Jack is hiding from the truth. He U-turned on his own manifesto commitment. He tore up the common frameworks agreed between the UK and devolved governments. He torpedoed Scotland's DRS using his undemocratic powers under the IMA. And now he is trying to dodge scrutiny by Scotland's elected representatives. The UK government said that there could be an exemption and Scotland could be granted a deposit return scheme if that deposit return scheme matched the UK scheme in areas, for example, matching the level of the deposit. The problem presenting officers 
officer was that the UK government hadn't set and still has not set a deposit. They set deliberately impossible conditions for Scotland's DRS. That is how they sabotaged it. So I thought that was quite a good debate. A lot of very passionate contributions and although they're quite long, it's quite good to hear exactly what the situation is. Interesting that Scottish Labour Party, which remember is only a branch office and can't do anything unless Stara sanctions it, appeared to be suggesting that they would consider repealing the Internal Market Act. But whether that would survive contact with reality, who knows? Mm. It's definitely important that they've gone to great lengths to lay bare the extent to which all of these things have been rolled back on. I mean, that is just not fair. An interesting question as to whether there's an equality issue there in that... um, you know, if you live in Scotland, you get whatever England wants to put in place because of the numbers. Well, yeah, it's you don't get democracy. You get what the government down south decides is right for you, which yeah. obviously is not on. Yeah. It's not as if there are four nations in the UK each doing their own thing. You've got one that's lording it over the other three. It is an unequal union. We know that. I thought that was quite an interesting debate. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Now, moving on to the SNP conference, which was held in Aberdeen. The item that we were all interested in was the debate on what is the way forward for independence. Now, we're not actually going to cover that in this Bits and Pieces because we're going to do a special episode next week, which looks at the speeches, looks at what was agreed. So we'll spend a bit more time on it then because it does deserve quite a lot of time. And we're not going to include Hamza Youssef's keynote speech either in this bits and pieces because that was a really good speech. It was good enough to deserve its own podcast. And last week we put that out so you'll be able to get that wherever you get your podcasts. We're also going to save the discussion and the motion around a publicly owned energy company because that is also deserving of its own episode, which we're going to do in December. So what's left to talk about from the conference? (laughs) The one person who I always enjoy listening to as a speaker is Stephen Flynn. So we're going to hear his welcome address to conference or part of it. Friends, it would, I'm afraid, be easy to fall into the comfort of a home crowd and try to somehow bypass the challenges that we all know that we face. At those Westminster party conferences, there were more than enough examples of politicians getting easy laughs and easy applauses. But the problems with saying easy things is that it's far too easily done. And in politics, it's done far too often. So I think it would be more helpful to be honest. And I think that honesty is the very least that each and every one of you deserve. Because the truth is that it hasn't been an easy few weeks for our party, let alone an easy few months. Despite our brilliant and absolutely fantastic candidate who worked day and night in a brilliant team of activists, we lost Rutherglen and Hamilton West, and we lost it comfortably. Yes, it was a by-election. Yes, it was a low turnout. Yes, there were very specific circumstances under which that election was called. But there's no point in hiding it and there's no point denying it. The defeat was humbling. But you know, here's the thing. We might not like to admit it, but one of the great things about democracy is that it does that sometimes. It's how you respond that matters. And when used right, democratic defeat is often the best way to renew your relationship with the people who matter most, the public. Each and every time the public have their democratic say, the only right response is to listen and to keep listening. The only right response to a humbling defeat is to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with the public. That's what leadership it's about. That's what truly representing the people of Scotland is about. And at our boldest and at our best, it is what the Scottish National Party will always be about. And friends, when the Scottish National Party listens, and then when we act, Scotland always wins. And conference, for me, listening with honesty to those lessons, one thing is very clear. In politics, you always have to meet people where they're at, not where you wish them 
to be. And right here, right now, we know where people find themselves. People are skint, and they have been for a good while now. In all the constant chaos of the last number of years, this is probably the scariest moment for people in our communities. In fact, for people right across our communities, things have probably never felt harder because the cost of living with Westminster is much more than a crisis. It is an emergency. It was an emergency last year, it's an emergency now, and it will remain an emergency until we get people the help they so desperately need. Friends, that means the safety of your own home after a tough day at work. The certainty of having food in the fridge to feed your kids. The warm shower to wash the dirt off their wee faces. These are the basics of everyday life, and for many, for millions in fact, they simply can't afford them. And that goes right across the board. For those on low fixed incomes and for those we would consider to be on middle incomes. There used to be talk about a squeezed middle. They're now no longer simply squeezed, they're barely getting by, and that stress of surviving is what people are facing into right now. The deafening thud of the letterbox flapping as the mortgage renewal lands, the anxiety of typing in the meter reading to see how much more you now owe. It is that simple, and it is that serious. People are at breaking point, and they're at breaking point because they live here in broken Britain. And friends, let's accept another truth. Politics does too easily and too often descend into a blame game. But when the blame is this blatant, it deserves to be repeated and it deserves to be remembered. Skint, scunnered, Scottish, blame the Tories after 13 years of failure through Brexit, through Boris, through 49 days of Liz Truss, we're now left with the Tory billionaire of last resort, Rishi Sunak. Now, we all know that Sunak is already sunk and that the Tories are in their dying days in office. But we know, too, that the very last sting of this rotten Tory tale is a cost-of-living crisis made in Westminster. Let's make sure that we keep remembering what they have done, the price that our people have paid because of it. And let's make sure that the Tories get stuffed at the next general election once again in Scotland. The conference, just because Sunak is already sunk, it doesn't mean the public should be made to wait for help and punished even more in the meantime. They need help right now, and they need help throughout this winter. In just over a month, there will be an autumn budget in Westminster. And in that budget, the SNP are going to call for three very straightforward and simple things. To reinstate the £400 energy rebate to help homes be heated this winter. To reintroduce mortgage interest relief to help households who are hit by, by rising interest rates. And finally, to follow the example of our friends in France to tackle the cost of greed crisis and cap food prices in supermarkets for all those basic daily essentials. These are real measures that will mean real help with the cost of living crisis for Scottish communities as we head into the depths of winter. And you know, a little more than a month ago, I offered to work with Sir Keir Starmer to help deliver this package of support conference. I don't even know if he supports it because he didn't even bother to respond. So I'll repeat the offer, but this time I'll make it directly to Labour's two, now two MPs in Scotland. And friends, the question for them will be, will Labour in Scotland stand up for the people of Scotland or will they simply do what Sir Keir Starmer tells them to do? In conference, let's never, ever fall into their trap of believing that this winter that support is not possible or realistic. Because you don't have to look very far to see where it is happening already. In fact, all you've got to do is look to Ireland. Last Tuesday, just an hour before Sir Keir Starmer rose to his conference platform to offer no support whatsoever in the immediate term, the Irish government was spending billions on support for their citizens right here, right now. 
mortgage interest relief, a tax credit for renters, 450 euros in energy credits, a double child benefit payment, and investing 100 billion euros in a sovereign wealth fund for the next decade. Our neighbours conference, an independent country in the European Union, growing economically, helping people through the cost of living crisis and planning for a prosperous future. This is Ireland's present. The question we now need to ask ourselves is why can't this be Scotland's future? Why not Scotland? In conference, that question also brings us to another fundamental reality. And truth be told, I think folk can see it and I think folk can feel it because it's a reality in plain sight. Brexit Britain is a place and a politics in deep decline. I couldn't help but notice that at the conferences the Westminster parties now apparently agree on something. Rishi Sunak told his party that, and I quote, Westminster is a broken system. Sir Keir Starmer, he talked about the walls of Westminster being so high that people's needs go unheard and unseen. Some honesty from the UK establishment at last. But those statements recognise a bigger truth and a broader trend. When it comes to debt, growth, productivity, inequality, the UK's problems aren't temporary, they are terminal. And this is no passing phase. Because this week too, we were informed that in comparison to nearly every other G7 country, the UK would be stuck living with. Higher inflation for longer, higher interest rates for longer, and lower economic growth. Friends, it's one thing for Sunak and Starmer to have finally woken up to the reality of Brexit Britain. But if they aren't prepared to offer a solution to that economic decline and social decay, then neither of them, neither of them, Tory or Labour, will ever offer real change to the people of Scotland. And in both Westminster parties, there is a heavy dose of denial and dishonesty on how to escape this current economic decline. But they need to be told. You can't deliver sustainable economic growth and at the very same time back a hard Brexit. You can't claim to back business when you deliberately isolate yourself from a single market of 500 million people, the largest market in the world. You can't hope to compete and win the global race to net zero if you either don't believe in a just transition like the Tories, or if, like Labour, you are already cutting back billions on your promises of green energy investment before they even get into government. And if your attitude to migration is solely defined by stopping small boats, you will never be rooted in the understanding that a modern migration system that welcomes people to our shores actually generates economic growth. Sunak and Starmer, they don't want to hear this, but it's the right thing to say, and friends, we will keep on repeating it. And in conference, all the talk is about whether the next general election is going to be a repeat of 1992 or 1997, but for Scotland, that history and that choice remains firmly placed in the past. Our country has moved on from that depressing seesaw. In 2023, Scotland is a place apart, and it's a politics apart. Our choices can be different, and so too can our future. Let's get rid of the Tories now. Let's never go back to Blair. And while we're at it, let's end Westminster control for good. Because, friends, the real choice at this general election boils down to this. The Westminster parties are asking the Scottish people to trust them to fix the unfixable, broken Brexit Britain. We are asking something different, and we are offering something deeply different. We are asking the Scottish people to put trust in themselves, to take powers and our future into our own hands. We are offering the opportunity to build a new, independent Scotland. And conference, when we do put trust in ourselves and take power into our own hands, the opportunity, those are endless. And it's something important to remind ourselves that for people my age, our political memory doesn't know anything 
other than devolution. The great generation led by Winnie Ewing, who told us to stop the world, Scotland wants to get on. And for my generation growing up, that's exactly what's kind of happened. The return of our Scottish Parliament gave us a voice, and our government began to confidently shape a society that truly reflects our values. It means that if you're a bairn born in Scotland, it'll be into a baby box. As you grow, you'll go to nursery with 1140 hours paid for you by the state. At primary school, you'll get a free school meal. Once you go to university, that'll be paid for you. In total, 95% of your peers will either do that, go to college, apprenticeship, or start or straight into work. Finally, land that job and do so knowing that you'll join with the majority of Scots in paying less tax than in England. Get a flat, your council tax will be cheaper than south of the border too. And all the while, turn on the tap and you'll get clean, crisp Scottish water from a nationalised company. Then fall ill, perhaps, and your prescriptions will be covered. Fall into poverty and your children will be protected by this child payment. Open a small business and your business rates will be covered. As you age, you'll join our young people in having access to free bus travel, whilst living in safe in the knowledge that your personal care will be covered. And bit by bit, it means a country confident enough, smart enough, and creative enough to imagine a future beyond Westminster. So that was a long, passionate speech. We've only included um, but probably the first two-thirds of it there. My favourite bit, actually, was the bit we ended on where he, he was just um, laying out what life could be like. You know, you, you, you're born, you've got a baby box, you've got free school meals, you go to university, you get a flat with lower rates. That was a very powerful kind of sequence, I thought. Yeah, being able to lay out your ambitions for the future that way is, is pretty key. You won't remember life before devolution because it was, what, 97, the vote, 97. We came in. But do you have any sense that you get all these things? Do you know that your counterpart in England doesn't get those things? Not offhand, no. I wonder how widespread that is because people, I think they do take it for granted that, that everybody gets this. But actually, you get it because in Scotland we've decided to do that. That's yeah. a choice that was made. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, uh, it's said that the children of today are a lot more politically aware than they were, but there's actually, in my lifetime, up to a considerably late point. I probably wasn't aware that we had our own government. (laughs) (laughs) Constitutional studies, if you were in, I don't know, Norway, America, or lots of other countries, that would be something that you got at school, was to understand the constitution and the decision-making structure of the the country you live in. That that is quite eye-opening that that you didn't know that. It is also possible I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) Well, okay, we can't mitigate for everything. (laughs) Anyway, back to the... two points in the speech that I wanted to just pick up on. And I think this is the essential problem that the SNP has, which is in Westminster, they can't make anything happen. So anything that's not devolved, he said, we are calling on the government to do. And two examples he mentioned, one was the devolution of employment law and the other was to cap food prices. Now, both of those were raised in Westminster this week. So let's just listen to what happened. Speaker, West only Food Bank in my Livingston constituency do an incredible job, just like food banks across the UK. But the reality is they shouldn't even have to exist. Folk are struggling more than ever, and that's why the SNP has called on the UK government to control price uh, supermarket price gouging amid record profiteering and introduce a price cap on staples like bread and milk. Will he now help all of our constituents and get on and do that? She is advocating, in effect, communism. I would, take, I would say to her to look around the world at how that works. Control of those marketplaces does not work. Thank you very much. Mr Speaker, prior to a cost of Westminster crisis that has been inflicted upon us all by the Tory party, a loaf of wholemeal bread costs one pound and one penny. Now, even after a slight drop in food prices, it's 20% higher. We know that it's not the farmers who are benefiting from this. The price of milk in supermarkets today is almost twice what we are paying the farmers for their product. So why won't the government and the Secretary of State 
state consider price caps to prevent the supermarkets profiteering and to help ensure basic essentials are not beyond the reach of many. But what he's advocating for is control of market prices. The, the effect of that would have exactly the opposite of effect of what he wants to achieve and drive up prices. So that was quite a shocker, wasn't it? Quite a sensible suggestion that people might be able to afford the absolute staples and they are accused of communism. There was a very good 10-minute rule bill that David Linden put forward about devolution of employment law. Mr Speaker, as this Parliament begins to draw to a close, many of us are left wondering why the much-vaunted employment bill never materialised. After all, we were promised that Brexit, now supported enthusiastically by the Tories and Labour, would not lead to diminution of workers' rights, but instead it would be an opportunity to enhance employment protections. And Despite countless fire and rehire instances, many of which referenced by my own friend from Paisley and Renfrewshire, North. Ever more maternity discrimination and an assault on trade union rights by a Tory government acting like Thatcher on steroids. The very opposite has happened. The fact is, employment rights under this British government are under attack. Far from dealing with workplace discrimination and issues, for example, such as the menopause, we have a government actively and increasingly hindering the rights of workers with its strikes minimum service levels legislation, a piece of legislation that even the ILO has expressed concern about. And as the world of work continues to evolve and as we seek to build back better from the pandemic, Brexit Britain is now on a steep decline when it comes to employment protections. However, this is an issue that extends far beyond the immediate rights available to workers because it is fundamentally a matter of equality. The way in which we value workers in our legislative framework sets the expectation of what we should expect workplace cultures to emulate, and legislation must help build the foundations of a fair and equal labour market. So let's take, for example, some evidence published in July by the charity Pregnant Then Screwed. Of 24,000 parents surveyed, it was found that 7% of women lost their job through redundancy, sacking or feeling forced to leave due to a flexible working request being denied. And if scaled up, the charity estimate that this would mean that over 41,000 pregnant women or mothers could be sacked or made redundant every year. Underrepresented groups continue to face significant inequalities in the workplace, and myself and many of my colleagues have stood here time and again calling for the enshrinement of flexible working as a day one right, as well as mandatory gender and ethnicity pay gap reporting. Now, given the powers, these are just some of the examples of workplace injustices that the Scottish Government would seek to remedy. But it is, Mr Speaker, an inescapable truth that Westminster's crackdowns of workers' rights, not to mention the assault on unions, have seen the UK's global rating on workers' rights (coughs) fall. Indeed, the UK has dropped in the International Trade Union Confederation's annual report on workers' rights from a rating of three, and that's countries where ITUC considers there to be, and I quote, regular violation of rights, to four, where the Confederation says there is now, again I quote, systemic violations. That sadly puts the British government on a par with the likes of countries like Qatar and Oman, the latter of which is an absolute monarchy where criticism (laughs) of the government is illegal. Now, if that's the message that the government wants to send as Brexit Britain, then it's certainly a bold move. So, Mr Speaker, perhaps it is no wonder that the devolution of employment law is backed by some of the biggest trade unions on these islands, including by the Scottish Trade Union Congress and the TUC itself. Ah. Now, only recently, the Trade Union Congress passed a motion calling for the repeal of current anti-union legislation and the devolution of employment law to Scotland. Ros Foyer, the outstanding SDUC General Secretary, is on record as saying, and I quote, It is clear, especially to any incoming UK Labour government, that the voices of workers across the country now support the Scottish Parliament having full autonomy over Labour and employment rights. So, Mr Speaker, that poses a question for our colleagues on the Labour benches. Why not Scotland? And in his rush to out-union Jack, even the Secretary of State for Scotland, the Honourable Gentleman, the member for Edinburgh South, has said no, nay, never, 
no further devolution. Okay. Now, today's vote is also a first test for the new Honourable Member for Rutherglen and Hamilton West. Yeah. Yeah. That poses a question for him when the division bell rings shortly. Whose side is he on? Yeah. Is he on the side of the Scottish Trade Union Congress or is he on the side of his Westminster boss in Camden? Post-pandemic, we could have been taking opportunities to empower trade unions, increase statutory sick pay, ban fire and rehire, and to do so much more for workers. But it appears once more that the Labour Party and the Conservatives have landed in the exact same space. And it is clear to us that a Westminster government of whatever colour does not have workers' rights as a priority. And it is only by giving Scotland the powers over employment law that the Scottish Government can entrench workers' rights in law and build a fair work society for all its citizens. Mr Speaker, we can and we must do so much better for our workers and our trade unions. And so if Westminster is not up to the job, then Holyrood will take this on and working people will be better off as a result. And so it's for that reason and with the support of our trade union colleagues that I commend this bill to the House. The question is that the Honourable Member have leave to bring in the bill. As many of that opinion say aye. Of the contrary, no. No! Revision, clear the lobbies. The eyes to the right, 22. The nose to the left, 33. So the nose have it. The nose have it. So all those people yelling no, very few of them will have constituencies in Scotland. Those people are yelling to deny a different country rights over employment practices in that country. Given the inequality of the UK Union, it's not really any surprise that this was the outcome. But it is, it's a reserved power. We are, we're all dragged down to how low England want to go, really. Yeah, so basically people shouting no are in fact just in favour of rampant, unchecked capitalism. Yes, and, and denying workers any kind of rights. In fact, if they could get them back up chimneys, they would. What a sad note to end. <laughs> no, I'm not going to end on that one. Well, that's your argument for independence, really, isn't it? But uh, the frustration is there's nothing we can do about it without that because Westminster just doesn't work for us. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Let's move away from Westminster, Holyrood and the SNP conference. Let's listen to a Professor Nicola McEwen and Professor John Curtis, who were both taking part in an event which is available on YouTube called The UK in a Changing Europe, What Next for Scotland? One of the uh, speakers at the event was Kieran Martin, who was involved in the Smith Commission, I believe. He was asked how the UK government would respond should the SNP go to them with a renewed mandate and say they want to start negotiations, which is pretty much what they put forward at the conference. So here is what Kieran Martin thinks the response to that would be. Whoever it is will say immediately no and will be now in an unassailable legal position. And in my view, others may disagree, will suffer absolutely no political detriment from so doing. And I think it's what happened. I think personally, and again, the more expert fellow panellists may disagree, but I think in the grand scheme of history, in terms of the constitutional future of Scotland, the 2024 general election will likely prove largely inconsequential. It's what happens in the full parliament or two parliaments after it that will be really important. That's kind of depressing. Just the dad. He's probably right, though, because what else can we do? All we've done for the last 10 years is ask for referendums, waiving mandates. But here's here's another question, and this is John Curtis is going to take this one. We know that there's this big gap between SNP support on something like 36% and independence support, which is around 50-50. Where have those people gone? Okay, um... There is certainly an interesting debate going on as to why the gap has emerged. If you talk to people who are close to the SNP, uh, they want to blame uh, Margaret Ferrier in particular for the difficulties in Rutherglen, uh, and they will want to put, point the finger at the police investigation to the SNP's finances. In other words, it was not us. Meanwhile, those close to the Labour Party are keen to argue that it is now the prospect of a majority Labour government that is tempting Labour voters, uh, attempting voters in Labour's direction. 
The problem with relying on these two arguments as the principal explanation for the SNP's difficulty is that it doesn't fit the timeline. So as I already pointed out, the prospect of a majority Labour government emerged in October of last year, um, but the SNP support for the SNP was still uh, running at 43% before Nicola Sturgeon resigned, i.e. barely down at all. Equally, if you look at the timeline of what happened in the wake of the uh, police investigation, actually support for the SNP did not go down at all in the wake of the first arrest and, and, sub and subsequent release, that is, of course, of Peter Murrell, the former chief executive, uh, although it did uh, then got do, get depressed a little bit further in the wake of the subsequent arrest and then release of Nicola Sturgeon. The principal period during which support for the SNP fell is between the announcement by Nicola Sturgeon that she was going to resign in the middle of February of this year and the announcement that Humza Yusuf was the new leader at the back end of March. What happened during that period? Well, one, it was a pretty fractious leadership contest. Divisions that had already been partly fueled by the internal argument about the gender recognition bill, um, but which then exposed wider uh, disagreements within the SNP, which are still continuing. And one of the things that's very clear from the polling is that people are now much more likely to think of the SNP as being divided than was the case a year ago. The second thing, of course, is the SNP have a new leader. And the brutal truth is that Humza Yusuf is nothing like as popular as his predecessor. And frankly, that includes within the SNP. What the most remarkable thing about the outcome of the SNP leadership contest was that despite having the vast majority of the public declarations by elected SNP parliamentarians in Edinburgh and in London, many of whom, of course, pretty much were very heavily critical of Kate Forbes' uh, rather socially conservative views on certain matters. Despite that, he only won by 52% to 48%. So that left him in a relatively weak position. And I think that the problem that the party now also faces is that, you know, they've had two extremely charismatic leaders both of them very effective at raising their party support. We know what happened when the last time they didn't have a charismatic leader, i.e. John Sweeney. In many ways, a very competent and highly effective politician, but no great campaigner, and the SNP struggled. So um, I, I would suggest that actually we should be looking much more at the state of the SNP itself as being where the problem arises, and that effectively a body of people, including some of those who would still vote yes, have lost confidence in the SNP as a political organisation. And where have they gone? Well, they've gone disproportionately to the Labour Party. I mean, the Labour Party's now got the support of about 20% of, about of those who voted yes in 2014. Although the truth is, the opinion polls don't really give us the data we really want, which is the breakdown by people's current support. I think probably in terms of current support, the Labour Party's probably got about one in six current yes supporters. And we have to remember the Labour Party is still primarily dependent on unionist voters. Indeed, the, 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 one of the other things that's happened in the last 12 months is the Labour Party is now the most popular party amongst unionist voters. It has displaced the Conservative Party uh, so far as that position is concerned. So that echoes a bit what we were talking about earlier, which is that can the SNP do anything to find out where have all their members gone? Um, and equally, where have the SNP voters gone? Are they just not bothering to turn out, although they'd still vote yes? Or have they actually gone to another party? And we just don't know. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of the the brief explanation for it, which is that they haven't gone to another party. What they have done is essentially decided to become unaffiliated. So mm. they are still fully in support of independence. If a referendum came up, they would happily vote yes. But at this point, they're so unenthused with the way that the current party is doing things that they can't really get behind supporting them. But furthermore, they still fully recognize none of the other big parties are in favor of what they actually want. So they can't go there either, which kind of leaves them in this no man's land where they just go, okay, I'm just pro-indie. Oh, so you're SMP? No, I'm just pro-indie. Yes. <laughs> okay, and Professor Nicola McEwen has a little bit more insight into what the future might hold for SNP. In fact, the question she was asked was whether the SNP was likely to split. Who knows? Um, I mean, I don't think it's on the verge of splitting. Um, if that was going to happen, then Alapa would have rather more members than it has. So you're absolutely right that the leadership 
contest was bruising and exposed some internal differences on ideology. But actually, I think the most bruising aspect of that was the questions over the competence of the leader and now First Minister. And that's that's been perhaps one of the most difficult things that he's had to um, wrestle with. In, as First Minister in the, in the post, that perception that was was nurtured even from within his own party. Because we're, we're never far away from an election in Scotland. Um, so no sooner will the UK Westminster election be decided that we will be looking ahead to the Holyrood elections. If the SNP were to secure the majority, I suppose, it, again, it would depend on what difference was the winning margin. But I suppose it is also important to remember that in Scotland, as in Wales, and obviously it's this case in Northern Ireland, even though it's a UK general election and ultimately it's about who governs the UK, there are parallel elections going on within uh, the smaller nations. And these are really important to determining what happens in the future, uh, in the future of the union. If the SNP declines a lot and comes second to Labour in that parallel election, then I do think it parks the, the constitutional debate for a while. And I suppose the SNP would then hope that if it is a Labour government, then it disappoints. If it is a Conservative government, then it then it continues to make it look like Westminster is not the future for Scotland. And they will try to turn that around in time for the next Holyrood election. If they do secure uh, what they see as a mandate and the UK government says no, which I agree with Kieran, I think they would say no, whoever uh, leads that government, um, then the SNP will try to use that to mobilise support around independence and increase support for independence ahead of the Holyrood election. There was a bit in the motion that was passed yesterday that they would reconsider in that event um, using the Holyrood election to try to secure a mandate. It was a little bit ambiguous as to what that meant if that was a sort of Catalan style, let's go all out to have a, a pro-independence list vote potentially. But all of that, I think, would have to be revisited after the UK election. The question I'm left with after listening to Professor McEwen there, you know, I don't disagree with what she said, but for the people who are just unenthused, people who still want independence, but for whatever reason are scuttled with the SNP. They're unaffiliated, as as you described them. What's it going to take to get them back on board? We've come so far to turn back now. And it just seems ridiculous that people would vote against their own interests, but people do that all the time. And it's key that we don't be absolutist about that. Independence would not be gone. Independence would take on another form. People will show ingenuity and they will find a way to bring it back to the forefront if it still remains a key issue. A popular uprising of some kind. Oh, well, I could sign Something up like for that. that. Absolutely. Of course it will come back because otherwise all of this rhetoric about it's not about parties, it's about the will of the people thing <laughs> falls flat on its face because yeah. if when the parties fail to deliver something, the people whose will it apparently was suddenly go... Oh, well, that's that then. <laughs> then. There clearly was no will. Well, that, that's a slightly more positive spin on it than, than I was taking, so that's good. And just to finish it off, the, the final question that Professor McCune was asked was, how come nobody's mentioned Brexit? Has that still got any relevance, or is it yesterday's news? So we're just going to um, finish off with her answer here. And I'll put the link to this whole event in the notes because it really is worth watching the whole thing, I think. You know, if we think back to the long home rule movement that led to the Scottish Parliament, if you ask anyone to pick a moment, they would probably talk about the poll tax um, or successive election defeats or whatever. But there are key things that you can point to in the journey that led to the Scottish Parliament that live on as legacy issues, in a sense. Brexit, I think, is one of those, partly because it changed the UK's status in the world and in relation to its neighbours, partly because it has affected the UK's economic outlook, but crucially because it was a massive decision on the UK's future uh, that was taken without the consent of Scotland as expressed in the referendum. And I think all of that matters. That said, Brexit also complicated independence because it 
gave rise to the issue, of, and particularly the former Brexit that we had in the TCA, and it gave rise to the issue um, of a hard border between Scotland and the rest of the UK, which is extremely difficult um, to sell in any independence campaign. Now, the irony is, if Keir Starmer is to become the next Prime Minister and is to reset that relationship in some form, big question marks over whether or not he can do that, um, but if he was to secure, for example, a veterinary agreement that that reduced the need for checks on the border, then some of the border issues around independence diminish significantly. Um, on the other hand, if he raises expectations and is not able to deliver, then that is problematic too for the union, because then where does that leave Scotland and its relationship with the European Union if it remains a part of, of the United Kingdom. So difficult to see which direction things go in, but I think Brexit still matters and will matter for some time to come. So the, the gift that keeps on giving, you know, we're never, we're never going to be shot at the influence of Brexit by the sound of it. So that's what we've got for you this month. Thanks very much, James, for joining in the discussion. It's my pleasure. To finish on a high note, I would simply encourage everybody to go and watch our, our video from The Chain of Freedom because... Of all the things that have happened this month, that was the one thing that made me feel really positive was attending that event. It was joyful, it was positive, it was hopeful, and it was ordinary people getting out there and just doing something. I'll put the link to that in the notes as well. That's right, folks. You can only make yourself feel better by watching more of the things we produce. (laughs) Yeah, that's the subtext. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back again next week with the next episode of Scottish Independence Podcast. See you next time. Bye now. You've been listening to Bits and Pieces. Bits and Pieces.